And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, you hovered over the water when the world was called into being. And by that same Spirit, you came down upon your apostles on the day of Pentecost when they preached the good news of Jesus to that world. We pray that you would come and be among us now in a fresh way. Soften our hearts, open our ears and our eyes, for we would see Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to please be seated. There's a story about Mark Twain. Um, he was asked if he believed in infant baptism. And Twain responded, believe in it, I've seen it. <laughs> I thought it was funny. This is going to be a long morning, you guys. <laughs> All right, well, before we get into the gospel, I do want to give a word of orientation just so it's not distracting. Um, first of all, we want to welcome Bishop Edgar, who's here with us this morning. Um, some of you know him or remember him as Father Edgar, who was your pastor for many years. Um, for Annalisa and I, he's our friend Chip. And when we found out that Benjamin was going to be born, I texted Chip and said, hey, would you be willing to do the baptism for Benjamin? I, I, um, I would love to just be dad for a moment. Even though my kids love to call me father, father, uh, sometimes it's just nice to be dad and to be able to take those vows with Annalisa. So he said yes and graciously uh, found one of his very few free Sundays to join us. And so we're excited you're here, especially since uh, within this week, he and Beth have welcomed uh, another new grandson to, uh, to the family. So he is graciously giving us his time. And so instead of asking him to spend his week working on a sermon or anything like that, um, you all are just stuck with me for another week. But I promise I've got good news for you. Um, but let me begin. Since it is football season, let me point out something that I have noticed over the past few years since I've been living here in the Midlands. Um, it happens especially in the fall. Depending upon what I am wearing, um, and by that I mean depending upon which team I have on my t-shirt, I can have two very different kinds of experiences at a grocery store on Saturday morning. Now, if I wear my Notre Dame gear uh, to the grocery store, it's not that people are, are mean or nice. Those aren't the two experiences. It's always nice. Everybody's always kind. But if I'm wearing my Notre Dame gear, uh, people are kind to me in a different way. They're kind to me like you are to a guest somebody who maybe you have over to your house for the first time for dinner. It's, they're nice, but it's sort of like you're a little bit of a stranger. Um, we're still getting to know you. But if I wear garnet and black on Saturday, they're nice to me in a new way. They're nice to me as if I'm family, as if I belong. It, it pretty quickly and noticeably so changes from me and you to being us and we. And that belonging comes along, and it feels really good to feel like you belong to this community just based on what you're wearing. And that sense of belonging is so good and important because belonging is one of those deep needs of being a human being. We all need belonging. We, we know that we all need relationships. We talk about humanity needing relationships in life. You can't live your life truly, completely on your own. But the truth is that we don't just need nice relationships, just friendly people at work or people that get to know us. What we need are people with whom we feel at home. 
We need people that create a safe place where we belong. We need communities where we belong. And we need it not just because it feels good, but because that belonging creates the space and the context for the rest of our human flourishing. When you belong to someone or to a group of people, you find that you can work better. You know this when you start a new job. If you're new to the organization and you're getting your feel around and you don't quite feel like you belong, you're just trying to figure out where to be and what to do. But if you stay with that organization or that company for a couple of years or for a couple of decades or a little bit longer, you start to feel at home. And when you're secure, you're actually freed up to work better. When you feel like you belong, you have the freedom to be creative, to take risks because you're not afraid that if it falls through, you're going to be thrown out. When you belong, um, you can survive hard circumstances because you can have people gather around you and go through it with you. They are your people. And no matter how hard it is, you've got people you belong to to go through with that with you. Also, and this might be more surprising, when you belong, you have the freedom to be wrong. If you're constantly wondering if you are in or out of a community, what you end up having to do is hide away your shadow side or the parts of you that you don't want people to see and always put your best foot forward. But when you know that you belong, you are free to admit that you are wrong sometimes without the fear that you're going to be rejected and thrown out. Belonging is actually the context where confession and repentance can really and regularly happen which is why it is so important when we're talking about our relationship with God that you belong. If you are constantly wondering whether or not you belong to God, you will find yourself clamming up. That's when legalism will take over and fear and perfectionism, and you're constantly wondering, am I right with God? But when you belong, when you know that you are at home with God and when He is your shepherd, as we said this morning, then freedom starts to open things up. You can be like Paul in our reading from Philippians, where he says that I have learned that whatever state I am, I can do all things through him. I can sit in a prison and tell you to rejoice always. And you're free in that state to do that. You're free to repent and confess without any fear or anxiety. When you belong to God, your Christian life, and by that I just mean the life of, that you were meant to live in relationship with God is free to be exactly what it was supposed to be. But the question is, how then do we belong? I think that's the point of Jesus' parable about the wedding feast. Now this morning I want to focus on the ending, but in order to get there, let's, let's walk through it briskly and take a look at a couple of the big movements so that we can set the context for what Jesus is doing here at the end. Jesus is telling this story in, as the third of three parables. We've heard the first two over the last couple of weeks. But what he's doing is he's telling these stories in response to the Pharisees. Jesus has come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He's teaching, he's healing, and the Pharisees don't like it. So they come up to him and they ask him, Who, by what authority are you doing these things? And that question is a belonging question. That's not, they're not going up like you, you do to a party magician and say, how are you doing it? They're going and they're saying, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to do this? But then, what, so he comes and says, who do you think you are? What gives you the right? They're creating this distance. You don't belong here doing that thing. 
And so Jesus responds with these three stories. And what he's doing with the stories is he's pushing them about their own sense of what they think it means to belong to the people of God. So in this third one, the king sends out his servants to gather up all the people who are invited to the wedding feast of his son. Now, this is not the invitation. These people had already been invited, and he's just going out and telling them, the party is starting. Come on, let's go. But they don't want to come. And he's the king. You can imagine that these are the nobles. You know that they own land and fields because what they end up doing is they say, "Um, I'm sorry, I've got to go work on my business. I'm sorry, I have to go work in my field. They're too busy building their own good lives to be with him. But then it's not just that they ignore him and put something in front of him, but then some of them actually beat and kill the servants. And if you're paying attention, you think, well, that escalated quickly. (laughs) When is the last time that someone invited you to a party and you thought, I'll kill them? (laughs) But But then that is your clue. That's the clue that Jesus is talking about something way more than just a wedding feast. We're talking about people who were invited into the feast, into relationship with God, and then decided that they were too good to be a part of that feast. Like last week, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. He's talking about people in the Old Testament who preferred to kill the prophets and to build their own kingdom rather than to come into Yahweh's feast. And when you see that, it starts to open up the rest of the parable. The king decides to invite then not just these chosen people or these righteous people. He's not calling just the successful nobles and the people that the king would know, but rather now he's inviting everybody. It says that he's inviting the good and the bad. He's embarrassingly indiscriminate about who he's inviting. He's inviting all of those people that you wouldn't think belong at this party. And the surprise is that it turns out that those are exactly the kind of people that belong at Jesus' feast, the people who know how to receive a free invitation. He's not looking for good people or just good people or just respectable people or just successful people. He's also looking for messy and sinful and sometimes doubting people. He's looking for people who know a good party when they see it and they know a good deal when they see it. And so with all of these sinners around him, God's party is underway. That is, until this one moment at the end, when the record sort of screeches, right? And this is the part where it gets tricky, because Jesus adds this little conclusion to the end. Now, we know that when Jesus, Jesus often uses parables over again, and we know in Luke that he used the same parable and changed slight details with it, and he would use parables in and out of different contexts and conform them to what he needed. But at this one, in Matthew, he decides that he's going to add this little bit at the end about this man who doesn't have the right clothes on. He doesn't have his garnet and black on, right? He doesn't belong. And that's scary. It's a little scary. Why couldn't have Jesus just stopped with grace given to the good, given to the good and to the bad? Why push it this little bit further? Some have suggested that what he means to say is that once you get into the party, now it's on you to start putting on the wedding clothes of love. It's now up to you to start loving other people. And it sort of resonates a little bit with what Paul says, that all that matters, and he says this in Galatians, all that matters is faith working out in love. And this is the true true and right response of somebody who gets grace. But in this setting, that gets confusing. Because how much love? 
What happens when you inevitably in your Christian life fail to love God or neighbor? Are you then bound and thrown out into the darkness? It leaves you not enjoying the party, but still sitting around wondering, am I in or am I out? And that does not seem to be the point that Jesus or the king is making. So some have argued that the clothing must be faith. One must be properly clothed in faith to be a part of the party. And of course, this is true. Surely that's part of it. Maybe Jesus assumed that his original hearers would have known that in the first century, it was really common for a king throwing this kind of a party to provide the wedding clothes for his guests. And that the fact that this man was speechless and didn't have one must have meant that he refused it outright. But none of that is in the text. And it seems strange that Jesus would give us a parable that would demand this very specific bit of historical fact for it to make any sense to us. So what we have to do is we have to take it at face value and we have to recognize that the question the king asks this man is designed to bring discomfort. But it's only meant to bring discomfort to those who don't know where to get a garment or how to find belonging. This is something that's happening with Matthew. One of Matthew's jobs throughout the whole, all of the books of the Bible as they're working towards the gospel have these different jobs. And one of the things that Matthew is doing is he is making people uncomfortable who are trusting in themselves. He's tilling up the earth so that when we get to the cross and the resurrection, we're ready for it. Matthew is the one who tells us the Sermon on the Mount, which is the perfect example of the law. It says, be ye perfect as God is perfect. Now, if you're trusting in your own good works and your ability to keep the law, then the Sermon on the Mount is not good news. If you trust in your riches or if you trust in your success and what you're doing, um, the rich young ruler who walks away sad will undo you. Jesus says it is easier for a, rich, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom. If you trust in yourself and your abilities and your merit for your belonging then you might need to feel a little uncomfortable because that's a very shaky place to stand. This is what Jesus has been doing with the Pharisees in this moment specifically. They came to him with a kind of arrogance and self-righteousness, and they have a question, they've questioned his authority and belonging, and through these parables, Jesus has been systematically breaking down their ability to trust in themselves. He's retelling their story to them so that they can no longer speak from that place. And in fact, they're the ones who are left speechless and in the darkness. And for some of us, it might be that we need to feel a little bit of that discomfort. We need someone to shake the ground where we have been putting all of our trust because it's not a good place to be and we need, we need to no longer trust it. And he wants to shake us up and look for something else. But then the question stands, where do you get your belonging? Where do you get your garment if it's not in your own works? And this is why Jesus' use of clothing as a sign of belonging is such a wonderfully rich image. If you know your Old Testament, you know that all clothing that is given like this is given as a sheer gift of grace. When Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve are taken out of the garden, it is God who clothes them in his grace. When Joseph receives his coat of many colors, it has nothing to do with his earning it. When Isaiah thinks about God's salvation, this is how he puts it in chapter 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. 
My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Or when God pulls Israel out of Egypt and makes her his own, Ezekiel looks back on that moment and he explains it like this. God says, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made a vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And then he weaves in what we might call baptismal imagery. He says, then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod your feet with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. The problem with the Pharisees was that they had built their sense of belonging on the idea that they were worthy of it in themselves. They believed that they were in the party because of their birth or their good deeds or their life choices, and Jesus is coming and looking at them as if they have no clothes at all. And he takes their question about authority and belonging and he turns it on its head. They ask him, where do you get the authority to do these things? And Jesus comes to them and says, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And they're the ones who are speechless. But for those who know where the garments are coming from, for those who know that they're being handed out at the door freely, there is no need to be speechless. The king is nothing but joyful in your belonging. And as we close, as I close, this is where we then need to turn our attention to baptism. Because Jesus has chosen that this baptism is the way that he will clothe his people and give them his promise of their belonging. In a few moments, Benjamin and Angel and Brielle and Braxton, they're going to be brought forward to this font, not on their own merit at all, but they'll come to receive the grace that God is freely bestowing upon them in this sacrament. From this moment, they will have a promise to hold on to that they belong to Jesus. And it's in the same way that all of you who are baptized have that promise for you too. You belong to Jesus. And it's true. They will have to hold on to that grace in their own faith, which is going to be given to them as a gift. They will have good works for them to do. The Holy Spirit and the kingdom will draw out of them gifts and creativity and self-sacrificial love. There will be days when they sin and it will accuse them and they will have to turn back to the one who forgives. There will be days when things are hard and they will have to cling to their good shepherd and also know that their good shepherd is clinging to them as they go through that valley of the shadow of death. Even though they have many doubts and fears, he will always walk with them. And all of this stuff will come for them in the same way that you know it comes for you day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out. But this is the thing. They will go through it not as people who need to prove themselves, but they will go through it as those who already belong, as those who have already received their wedding garment from the Son himself. And as we watch this happen, and as we all say the creed together, and we remember our own baptisms together, you and I are here to remember this, that despite the sins that beset you, and despite the doubts and fears that you carry, despite the work that is in front of you to do, you belong to Jesus. 
And no one has the authority to take that away from you because the only one who has the authority to give it to you has sealed it for you in his blood. He was stripped naked and died so that you could be clothed and live. And that was promised to you in your baptism and it is your covering to receive and it can never be taken away. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.